You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, I'm Dr. John DeYard, and welcome to LifeSpa.com, where we prove the ancient medical wisdom of Ayurveda with modern science. And today, I have a special guest, Ben Greenfield. Let me introduce you to him. He's a biohacker, <clears throat> human body and brain performance coach, ex-bodybuilder, Ironman triathlete, I think six Ironman triathletes or more, maybe, um, a professional Spartan athlete, anti-aging consultant, speaker, and author of the New York Times bestseller, Beyond Training, Mastering Endurance, Health, and Life. Great book, great read, and uh, has one of the top-ranked health podcasts on iTunes. In 2008, Ben was voted the NCA, NSCA Personal Trainer of the Year, 2013 and 14. He was named by Greatest one of the top 100 most influential people in health and fitness. And his articles, podcasts, and videos have reached over a million views per month. And his blog and podcast you can find at uh, bengreenfieldfitness.com. I was very uh, fortunate to, to have Ben invite me on his podcast a couple of times. And I uh, got to know him. A super big fan of him. I think you're going to love this interview. There's no one out there who... Um, very few who practice what they preach and are so highly motivated towards longevity. And a big part, then of what we do here at Life Spa <clears throat> is we're all about, you know, conscious longevity, how to maximize human potential. And I think it'd be really neat to compare some ancient wisdom notes with some modern science notes and some biohacking notes and see where we all end up. Um, before I let you speak, I wanna, I wanna tell you a couple of things we've been really into lately on my podcast is kind of trying to, to um, kind of deal with a lot of the dietary confusion out there. I recently uh, interviewed David Perlmutter, again for the second time with his new updated version of the Brain Grain. Um, uh, recently interviewed uh, Dr. John McDougall, the vegan expert, and tried to find some common ground with him. I tried to find some common ground with David Perlmutter. And I know that that you are, uh, you know, kind of follow more of an ancestral diet and eat more meat than these than than definitely Dr. McDougall does. Um, and I want to just kind of dive into that first. First of all, I want to welcome you. Thanks for being here. Uh, how are you? I'm well. Thank you, and thank you for the the gracious introduction. I have to say that. Uh, I am a I am a big fan of the work that you do as well, John. As a matter of fact, uh, your your five day short liver cleanse I think is just a real gem. Uh, upon seeing some of Dr. Walter Longo's research on the fasting mimicking diet, this idea of on a quarterly basis, uh, very similar to your idea of doing a seasonal cleanse, but on a quarterly basis, uh, having a five day stint in which you're eating about you know, 40 to 50% of your normal daily calorie intake, mm -hmm. the improvements in cellular autophagy and the increase in longevity that he's noted in his research mm -hmm. uh, sparked my motivation to do a, a, a kind of a quarterly cleanse, a, a quarterly caloric restriction habit uh, vers mm -hmm. versus say just like a strict five day water fast. And uh, what the way that I've been achieving that is actually via your your five day cleanse. So I make myself up a nice big batch of of, uh, of kitchery stew, and uh, I have my ghee every morning. I drink a big glass of celery juice with my stew. I I uh, I'm I'm friends with Dr. William Davis, who 
has a recipe for a fantastic L rootery uh, probiotic yogurt. And I put a, a dollop of that on, on top of the stew and I'm happy as a clam having that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for, for five days at the beginning of each season. And, and man, it just works like a charm. I do a lot of self quantification. I do, you know, a, a lot of blood and, and urine and stool and saliva testing. And every time I do that, my, my liver enzymes just magically respond. They, they, they plummet and, and I, I digest food better, and, and I feel as though my, my bile flow just becomes significantly increased. So thank you for, for producing that, that, that helpful little PDF. It's actually uh, quite nice to be able to work that in every quarter. Yeah, you know, it's so funny that you mentioned that because I'm a big fan of Dr. Longa's work, and, and I was so struck by when I, when I read his work, I thought, this is almost identical to our short home cleanse. So I'm actually coming out with a, a version that is precisely 1,100 calories like Dr. Longo does to get the autophagy and the stem cell activation. And what's really interesting, you might be interested to know this, there's an aspect of uh, Ayurvedic medicine called Kaya Kalpa. And when I first studied back in the uh, early 1980s, I kept hearing these stories of longevity in India, living to people living to 100, 150, 185 years old. And they would talk about going to, you know, to, um, into sensory deprivation, eating very small amounts of food, one meal a day, very small, like kitchari and some ghee, a few really very specific herbs. And they would talk about their hair would fall, teeth would, hair, teeth would fall, hair would fall, skin would peel, and they'd come back you know, after six months or three months or two months in these kind of caves of, of sensory deprivation with a whole new brand, new brand new body. And of course, a lot of mythology there. But there was always something about that that made me really wonder about this idea of longevity. Then when I read, you know, Dr. Longo's book about the biosphere, and these guys came out of there and uh, out of this two months, you know, kind of sensory deprivation, eating calorie restriction, very much like what the traditional Kaikalpa was, and their organs shrunk. And then he said that their organs actually grew back anew. And the only way to do that was with stem cell activation. And I was like, wow. Is that what they actually actually reproduced thousands of years ago or whenever that was, that they were able to triggering stem cell activation, which we now have good science for? So I'm actually launching that cleanse, uh, re another version of the cleanse to precisely match Dr. Longo's right research to really make sure that people get the exact amount of calories from fat and carbs and deliver the stem cell and the esophagy. So I'm really happy that you love that. And I think it's uh, uh, really neat to see the science beginning to back that up. Yes, and, and obviously Dr. Longo partnered with the, the company El Nutra to develop the Prolon diet, which is kind of a five-day kit that's sent to your home. But any time I can do it with real food, I kind of eschew the, the packaged approach, although I understand that that's very convenient for a lot of folks. And frankly, you know, I, I have a kid up in my pantry, and it's as far as processed and packaged food goes, it's actually pretty clean. I, I was pretty impressed uh, but at the same time, I, I really do like the, this more kind of Ayurvedic approach. And uh, yeah, I, I combine that with a lot of time in the infrared sauna. I do a, a couple of coffee enemas during that five-day stint, and it works fantastically. So, so, you know, you're a big fan of Dr. Longo's. You're a big fan of the centenarians and how they ate. And, you know, and I interviewed Dan Butner as well. And the, 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 uh, you know, the word on the street is that the centenarians ate about a 90% plant-based diet with 10% animal protein. Dr. Longa suggests that that's the, uh, the, you know, the diet for the best longevity. One of the big um, Seventh-day Adventist studies where they measured 
all types of vegetarians, to, including pescatarians and meat eaters. They showed that the, the pescatarians literally live the longest in that diet, but still eating about a 10% animal, you know, uh, fish-based diet. So I'm curious where you stand on the whole meat thing. I interviewed Dr. John McDougall, a vegan expert, one of the world leaders, absolutely against you know any type of meat at all. We do know that the vegan Dean Ornish, Esselstyn diet are the only diets that actually been shown to reverse heart disease, um, which is a powerful statement to be able to make. Um, so um, I just can't wait to hear what you have to say about you know how do we reconcile the vegan diet, which has been shown to cure heart disease, versus a meat-eating diet, versus a ketogenic diet, and you know what's your take on all that? How do you rationale all this conflicting science? You rationale it, in my opinion, by taking a very individualized approach rather than a, a dogmatic or myopic approach that considers the fact that a ketogenic diet worked for your neighbor to, to lose 20 pounds or to improve cognition, uh, and therefore that diet must work for every human being on the face of the planet. And, you know, when, when you step back and, and you look at, for example, uh, genetic variants, right? Like we know that, that certain people who are, say, of, uh, you know, an, an, an APOE 3.3 or even an APOE 3.4, genotype, they respond pretty deleteriously once saturated fats uh, exceed about 10% of the total fat intake as far as, as cardiovascular risk potential. And that would dictate that people with, with those specific genes would respond better to a diet higher in mono and, and polyunsaturated fats. It's not to say that, that carbohydrate restriction might not benefit them, especially if they at the same time have, you know, a, uh, for example, increased risk of, of type two diabetes, say, but that, that's that's one thing to take into consideration. You know, an, another fact would be just pure anatomical differences. You know, if you read a book like Biochemical Individuality by Roger Williams, which shows you know twelve different sizes of the, of the liver and of the stomach and of the esophagus, and and it, it's a fantastic book that even goes into how some people excrete vitamin D extremely, uh, extremely uh, readily. And, and then other people, you know, myself included, don't even have the gene that allows them to make any appreciable amount of vitamin D from sunshine. And that would dictate that, you know, if, if someone is recommending that you eat a diet that's supplemented with high amounts of vitamin D, that that could potentially cause a little bit of, of excess calcium in the bloodstream or risk of arterial calcification in people who aren't excreting it as readily. And in other people, it's a pure necessity because they can't get all that vitamin D from sunlight. And then if you go above and beyond that and, and begin to delve into this, this wonderful and, and very available and accessible new world of self-quantification where we can get stool panels and even now full microbiome panels of our gut and we can do not only salivary panels for genetics, but also salivary panels for hormones or urinary panels for hormones or even fantastic protocols like, a, like an organic amino acids test for neurotransmitters and, and micronutrients and amino acids, along with things like complete lipid panels for, for the blood, uh, as well as some other very comprehensive blood panels. It turns out that it's not that difficult to... To, to test yourself and to find out what kind of diet is going to be most appropriate for you. And that's my approach, especially because when you take that approach from a genetic 
profiling standpoint, you can even get some very good data into your ancestry and become more advised about where your ancestors lived. And you can investigate a little bit more and into what type of diet you might be more epigenetically favorable towards, you know, if you come from, from, uh, you know, sub-Saharan Africa or, or Southeast India population, you might make higher levels of salivary amylase and be able to digest a higher amount of starches, but you might also carry a, carry or not carry the gene that allows for, for the ability to be able to, to, to digest, uh, lacto sugars from, from milk. And so you might be on a slightly higher starch, you know, low dairy diet and, and typically people from those populations have some pretty robust sodium excretion mechanisms and so uh, or, 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 or rather sodium uh, uh, retention mechanisms. so you might need to you know limit a high intake of salt whereas if you come from a northern European population with a history of, of a heavy amount of pickling and salting foods for preservation you have you know as I do I've tested my, my sweat sodium output uh, very high levels of sodium excretion so you need a lot more minerals and you respond better to a diet that's heavy in, in fermented and pickled foods and, and, and fish and even some amounts of, of meat and potentially a higher fat intake and a lower starch intake and so you know, it, it ultimately comes down in my opinion to customization and personalization there's even a fantastic book called by uh, Dr. Daphne Miller called the jungle effect. In that book, she she describes how you know people from Iceland, despite having a uh, a higher than normal genetic predisposition to to depression and seasonal affective disorder, don't really manifest that disease while eating their traditional diet because it's very high in omega three fatty acids, which can limit the development of some of those symptoms. And you take that same person and uproot them and put them in the context of a Western diet, and they'll often develop seasonal affective disorder or depression or Look at the area of Cameroon, Africa, very high fiber intake, despite a higher than normal risk for colon cancer. And you take that same population and put them on like a, a low fiber, say, uh, you know, Southeast American diet. And all of a sudden you've got a higher than normal instance of colon cancer in, in an African American population or the Tarmahar Indian tribe has a higher than normal risk for, for type two diabetes, but they eat a lot of kind of slow release carbohydrates, right? A lot of like the, the three sisters, you know, and, and a lot of legumes and, and, and maize and, and natural forms of corn. And, you know, then you uproot that person, put them on tortilla chips and, and a Tex-Mex diet and, and diabetes manifests. So ultimately, in my opinion, it comes down to self-quantification some amount of wisdom from our ancestors. And then once you're armed with that data, you step back and you, you develop a diet that's going to work well for you. Now, to answer your question about meat, I certainly agree that in nearly every case we see wild plant intake, uh, legume consumption, probably because of the low glycemic index of legumes, uh, and limitation of red meat intake in, in most of the blue zones. However, that does not mean I'm opposed to red meat intake, especially if, if you come from an ancestral population that would have had a higher intake of red meat from, you know, from caribou and, and deer and moose and buffalo and, and elk and a lot of these wild forms of game that are so much healthier than, a, than our modern CAFO, you know, CAFO meat. And so uh, uh, 
I, I eat red meat. I, I hunt most of my own meat or occasionally get some really good grass-fed, grass-finished ribeye steaks, but I'm very cognizant of my, my intake of it. It's only one to two times a week that I'll have an, a nice big old, you know, for, for me, uh, uh, an eight-ounce portion of, of red meat's kind of like an appetizer. You know, I'll have a big old 16 to 20-ounce steak and, uh, and, and uh, I feel fantastic. I, I feel like I've been shot in the arm with, with you know, erythropoietin and hormones after I've had that. And my body feels fantastic for a few days. And that probably is because of, of a, a really steep activation of, of mTOR pathways and a very high anabolic response. If I were doing that every day, I would, I would likely induce uh, some amount of, of a, a limitation of cellular autophagy and a potential decrease in lifespan. But I do take in the red meat because primarily, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an athlete. I'm, I'm tearing down my body. I'm doing a lot of weight training. I'm still competing in a lot of these races. And I feel like my body recovers a lot more quickly when I eat those. I monitor my blood. It does not result for me in a, in a hefty increase in, in HSCRP or other inflammatory byproducts. You know, when I, when I look at gut inflammatory markers, those stay very low. My ferritin does not become excessively elevated. And so I'll have red meat a couple of times a week, but the majority of my diet is is very rich in wild plants, very rich, especially in a lot of the fattier fish. I go through sardines and, and herring and, uh, or, or, or herring and, and, and mackerel and, and anchovies, like, they're, like they're, they're going extinct. And uh, I, we have, we have a, a great big flock of chickens, and so I'll, I'll have a few eggs a week, and, uh, and I do a limited amount of dairy, you know, some amount of raw goat's milk, and and, uh, and that's the way that I go about things. And, and, and I must say, if I were not an athlete, and if I were also not, and this is kind of the social component, if I were not vain, right? Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm an icon in the, in the fitness movement, and I actually find that, um, I call this silly, like for, for me to do better on Instagram, for example, with my shirt off, I, I kind of like to maintain some amount of muscle. It's very hard for me to, 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 to pack on a lot of muscle when, when I'm not eating much meat, I, I lose, I lose muscle pretty rapidly as well. So there's kind of that social component too. Uh, you know, it, it just, it helps me out with my physique, which, which I think is, is something else to take into consideration if that's important to you. But yeah, ultimately it comes down to customization and also, you know, lo looking at what we see prevalent across a lot of the blue zones. And, and I don't think swearing off red meat is the answer as much as limiting consumption of it. And sure, if I, if I live until I'm 118 instead of 120 because of my, my, my Wednesday night intake of a big old grass-fed, grass-finished cut of ribeye that leaves a smile on my face for days and gives me amazing sex for a couple days after and, and all that jazz, and, and yeah, maybe, maybe I'll take that, uh, that, uh, that couple of years decrease because there's kind of a life in piece of this too. Well, you, well, as we get older, we know that we do need more protein, and I think that... Um, yeah, that's one of the one of uh, Dr. Longo's takeaways. It's definitely an Ayurvedic concept as well. As we get into the later uh, years, we call it the Vata time of our life, or the winter. Uh, so the seasonal cycles is there's spring, which is the young part of your life. So the summer is the you know the the middle part of your life, and then the winter is the the last part of your life. And of course, that's in the winter when we when we eat more proteins and more fish and hunt and gather more roots. You mentioned how, how um, <clears throat> there's seasonal affective disorder. And in a lot of those studies, the serotonin receptors, the BDNF receptors, they, they um, are very sun receptive. 
And when you go into the dark times of the year, you don't have those. But then nature provides you, that's such a cool thing, and I'll talk a little about seasonal eating as well. Nature provides things like bacopa and uh, ashwagandha and fish oils and turmeric, all of which are fall harvested roots, all of which would activate the receptors for BDNF and serotonin and dopamine. So nature said, okay, guys, you're not going to have the sun, but I'm going to give you these roots to amp up those receptors. And if you just eat those roots seasonally, you wouldn't have the ups and downs in, in the in the uh, in the receptors and the mood as well, and even vitamin C. I want to talk to you about you know you know ancestors. Uh, our ancestors. I read a study recently. I wrote about it where vitamin C was shown to protect the fat-soluble vitamins. And then I was thinking, God, vitamin C would be something that we would want to have more in the winter time. Although, and the citrus fruits are harvested in the winter. In Ayurvedic medicine, the three tastes to balance the nervous system and balance winter are sweet, sour, and salt, sour being the vitamin C taste, and that the vitamin C um, provides us with this protection of the fat vital vitamins, so therefore those fat vital vitamins can do their job of calm the nervous system and support mood, stability, and endurance during the winter months. There are a few things like amalaki, amla berries, a winter harvested berry. Traditional people would, would dry some of their fruits, but also... Organ meats are high in vitamin C. Right? I think adrenals are some of the highest. Isn't that true? Yeah, they are. And, and a few comments on what you've just said. Uh, a couple of rabbit holes we could go down. Uh, I, I would certainly throw in you know, green tea and, and lion's mane extract, which is wonderful. You, know, you look at the doctrine of signatures, and it looks like a cluster of, of axons and dendrites when you see it uh, growing in the, in the forest. And, and even, even psilocybin you know, has ongoing research now for neurogenesis. And, and we have a lot of St. John's wort, a little yellow flower. My children call it happy flower, and we make a little tincture out of that that we'll, we'll touch on during the winter times after we've harvested it in the, in the summer. And so Yes, all of those can be useful for the seasonal affective disorder or, or depression or just cognitive enhancement as a whole. And then also the, you know, the whole biohacking piece, right? Like I live in the forest. I'm on a north-facing slope that gets a little bit of sunshine between about 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. And I'm indoors. You know, I, I podcast. I write books and work on blog posts. So sometimes I'm relegated to, to being indoors in my office. I, I make it a point to try and get out into the sunshine when I can, but I, you know, I, I have two giant infrared light panels in my office that I, I bathe my body in every morning for about 20 minutes. I have a, a head-borne device called a, called a V-light. It's almost like sunshine for your head that activates a lot of the, the cytochrome C oxidase and the mitochondria of your neural tissue. I have uh, glasses and, and in-ear devices that I wear to produce light, and often I'll walk into my office in the morning with a cup of coffee or a cup of green tea and sit there for 20 minutes and, and sip while I just blast my entire, I, I take off all my clothes and I just blast my entire body with light. And that, you know, that's an example. I know a lot of people might be wondering, well, what the, what the heck is a biohack? That's, that's a perfect example of, of kind of, kind of throwing a little bit of biohacking into the equation as well. And uh, in addition to that, uh, regarding your comments on, on vitamin C, uh, yeah, it, not only is it useful for a lot of those things that you just brought up, but it can also increase collagen availability, right. which is another reason that it pairs so well with, with, with meats and, and even with things like bone broth, for example. And so in many cases, if I'm, you know, if I'm making a, a nice hot cup of bone broth in the winter, I'll cut open a lemon and I'll, I'll squeeze half of, a, half of a lemon in there. 
we have a giant elderberry tree on the edge of our property, which is very rich in vitamin C. And my wife will harvest elderberries in the summer and then uh, we'll ferment those. And we have a big glass carboy out in the garage full of fermenting elderberries. And, and she'll make a nice little elderberry wine that I can sip on before dinner, which leads me to the last thing I wanted to mention based on some of the things you were talking about earlier. And that's that, that increased need for proteins you age is accompanied by an increased need for for hydrochloric acid and digestive enzyme production to be able to break down those proteins. If you just eat more protein as you age, a lot of times you'll get things like like, like heartburn and, and undigested protein particles because some of your pancreatic enzyme production will decrease. Some of your some of your bile production will decrease. And so, you know, increasingly as I age, I'm using a lot more of these bitters and digestifs, not not just things like a elderberry wine, which is a little bit tannic, a little bit bitter, but you know, I use a lot of melon extract and berberine and curcumin and fennel seed and, and coriander and, and black pepper and, and lemon. And, and I'll use a lot of these things prior to these protein rich meals to be able to enhance digestion and, and increase some of the availability of that protein, which I also think is important as you age. No, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's, that's a, a big piece of what I do actually in my practice is, you know, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of thinking out there that, you know, if you can't digest it, don't eat it, uh, like wheat and dairy and nuts and seeds and legumes, and they have anti-nutrients on them, and therefore hard to digest. And people say, well, as you get older, you don't make the enzymes, so you should therefore, you know, uh, not eat those foods or take digestive enzymes. But we know that 91% of the people, the bile ducts and the pancreatic ducts go into the small intestine together. And if you have bile sludge, we eat a bunch of you know, highly refined polyunsaturated fatty acids that clog up and create bile sludge, you're not going to get the enzymes either. So instead of taking, say, digestive enzymes, um, why don't we decongest the liver and the gallbladder and allow the stomach to make the acid it needs because it knows there's a neutralizer in the small intestine, the bile, and the pancreatic enzymes waiting for that. And a lot of times the stomach acid gets dialed down because of the lack of good neutralizers, buffers for that acid in the small intestine uh, via pancreatic enzymes, dwell enzymes, and bile flow. So I'm a big fan of resetting function and try to hold on to the production of HCL and bile for as long as possible. And I haven't thrown in the towel to say that hey, I'm 62 years old. I'm not willing to say, hey, I don't make those enzymes anymore. I'm digesting better than I did when I was 18 now, and I'm still going strong. So I don't see why in the world we have to, we have to, I haven't seen any studies to say we, and if we are the studies that say that digestive enzymes dial down, I would venture to say it's because of the processed food we've been fed for the last 60 years that caused that and i wonder if you look at centenarian people do they actually have that issue any radar on that nope i i've i've not seen any epidemiological studies on digestive enzyme production as one ages i've just noted in myself that i i have an increasing need it seems to take on some bitters and some digestives prior to a meal to do things like uh, decrease bloating or not feel that that heavy feeling of tiredness or, or sleepfulness that can often come on, you know, after you've had a right. steak or a very complex meal. Uh, right. And and you know, when, when you talk about digestibility, it kind of returns to that that phenomenon I call quinoa in your crap, right? And people hear about quinoa, you know, a super grain or a super grass, and they they rush out and they buy quinoa uh, for its proteins and amino acids and fatty acids, and they they get their bag of quinoa from Costco and, and cook it up on the stovetop and wind up with, with stomach upset or, or 
or you know quinoa in their in their toilet bowl because it hasn't been rendered digestible. I gave a presentation at my children's school last week on nutrient density and digestibility and how even if something is nutrient dense, like a like a grain or grass, that doesn't necessarily mean it's digestible. And I, I handed okay. around a bag full of normal unsprouted quinoa, and then I handed around a, a jar that, that we'd been sprouting for a couple of days. You could see all little tails coming off of the quinoa and how it was being rendered digestible. And okay. so I, that, that that's important too, is, is of course paying attention to digestibility, which I, I know that, that you've probably addressed on your on your podcast before. But yeah, um, you know, I, it, I just, you know, total N equals one standpoint or, or anecdotal standpoint, I just seem to run into a lot of people who have increased difficulty digesting hefty amounts of protein or even very complex meals as they age and, and a, lot, yeah. a lot of chewing, a lot of kind of parasympathetic mode eating, sitting down, breathing, and also the use of some of these bitters and digestifs seems to help out with that quite a bit. Well, no doubt. I think that's exactly the difference between taking bitters and, you know, spices like ginger and cumin, coriander, fennel, cardamom. These herbs are naturally designed to help your body make its own stomach acid, help boost its own production of bile versus taking a digestive enzyme, which is doing the job for you. And that's, the, I think, the difference that, uh, that I don't like to cross that line. I, like, I want to do everything I can to motivate my body to pull it off versus be dependent on a pill or a powder. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. For me, when I'm at home, it's far easier for me to, uh, you know, drink drink a glass of like a, right now. I've got a little Costa Rican liqueur called called Mamawana, which got cinnamon bark and a whole bunch of other little tannin leaves and barks that's filled with half half rum and and half red wine that kind of ferments on my countertop for a couple of weeks. Very easy for me to like have a glass of that on ice with a squeeze of lemon prior to a big dinner meal. Yeah. When I'm traveling, uh, I'll admit I, I actually travel with digestive enzymes because sometimes it's hard for me to, to use that type of approach when I'm traveling. Often I'm a little more stressed when I'm traveling, you know, eating quick meals at conferences, et cetera. So I do travel with, uh, with digestive enzymes, uh, but, but it's not, it's not a frequent practice of mine. And even when I travel, it's, you know, it's before my larger meals. So I want to ask you another question. Um, uh, the epidemic of our times is, you know, pre-diabetes type two diabetes. And, um, and I heard you on a podcast um, talk about how you're a big fan of, you know, having a sort of a, a low carb, you know, breakfast and lunch and sort of a higher carb supper, where a lot of the research suggests to flip it and to have, you know, low carb, you know, or, or have the, your carbs in the morning and have no carbs at night to lower your blood sugar in the morning, even the, like the whole day two, that Israeli study where they took the people's blood sugars and they saw what foods increase blood sugar as an individual kind of a thing. I mean, their whole premise was to give you low glycemic index meals at night uh, so you have lower uh, blood sugars in the morning, kind of trying to mitigate the dawn phenomena where blood sugars seem to tend to rise first thing in the morning. I I'd love to hear your take on, because so many people have this sort of chronic blood sugar issue. What's your take on, on that? And, and why do you recommend carbs at night? Is there some, some studies to show that will actually lower the morning blood sugars? But yeah, so tell me about that. Yeah, I've messed around with this quite a bit. And I wear this Dexcom continuous blood glucose monitor on my arm here to be able to track my values. You're correct. There's, there's a lot of research that shows that mitigation of carbohydrate especially in the evening and, and within about three hours prior to bedtime, really reducing carbohydrate seems to improve insulin sensitivity and, and blood glucose during the next day or during the 24 hours after. 
they too study, of course, showed this is highly dependent on microbiome, meaning, right. you know, the famous cookie and banana analogy. Some people had a pronounced blood sugar response to cookies and bananas, others did not. I also suspect it may have something to do with the AMY1 gene, which can influence your, your salivary amylase production. And so if you increase your salivary amylase production, you get a better first phase insulin response to, to a carbohydrate-based meal and, and more stabilized blood glucose after eating it. But the, the reasoning behind my approach actually comes down to the fact that, that for me personally, uh, as an athlete, I tend to, based on the fact that your body temperature is higher, your, you get that second peak of testosterone, your reaction time is better, even your post-workout protein synthesis goes up when you do an afternoon to an early evening workout. And so in many cases, I'm, I'm doing my harder workout of the day in the afternoon or the early evening meaning that I am almost artificially producing an insulin sensitive state that otherwise would not have existed with that afternoon or evening workout, which typically involves some kind of high intensity interval training or, or weight training. And anytime I'm doing that, which is at least five days of the week, I save my carbohydrates for my evening meal because not only do I get better carbohydrate partitioning into liver and muscle tissue, but if I'm able to take in the majority of my carbohydrates in that, in that very insulin-sensitive post-workout state, but I also get that serotonin response that allows me to sleep like a baby after I've kind of gone to a, to a sympathetic place later on in the day. Now, for most of the athletes, the exercise enthusiasts, the CrossFitters, the triathletes, et cetera, who I work with, uh, that works very well. And of course, those people have a little bit less to worry about with carbohydrate consumption as it is because they're just more insulin sensitive with their exercise, they're, they're depleting glycogen, etc. With some of the professional athletes that I work with, we actually do both uh, because in many cases, they're doing a two a day. And what research shows is that in most cases, a post-workout meal, especially a post-workout meal that has a hefty amount of carbohydrate in it, is not necessary unless you're going to be exercising again within about eight hours after that right. first workout. So for an athlete who is doing a two a day, uh, which I don't recommend for longevity, but for, for performance, you know, for, for an Olympian, you know, a lot of times you're doing your, whatever your, 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 your swim workout in the morning and your dry land strength training in the afternoon or the evening, uh, they're eating carbohydrates twice a day, right? With, with like a, a morning or, or mid morning post-workout meal. And then again, with, with, a, with an evening post-workout meal. And then when you get to the, to the sedentary folks or for the people who are just kind of passively exercising, not kind of, of going to the bank quite as much, I'll flip that. And for those people, having some, some berries and some sweet potato or some, some, some tubers or some starches, you know, even a little bit of like a nice fermented sourdough bread with breakfast, a little bit of raw honey and, and butter and sea salt on it, you know, that, those are the type of things that I'll have the less active people have with breakfast and then taper off their carbohydrate consumption during the day until they're not eating very many carbohydrates at all during the night. And sometimes... With some folks, I'll even use a 5-1-1 approach where for five days in a row, they're, they're really staying relatively low in carbohydrate intake. Uh, and, and again, you know, returning to the concept of biochemical individuality, this isn't for everyone. There are some people who, who are able to, to eat a higher percentage of carbohydrates than others. But for a lot of people, this works quite well. You do five days of a, of a lower carbohydrate intake and then one day where you're almost doing a little bit of a, a glycogen refeed or 
you know, enough of a reset to where the, the thyroid isn't becoming downregulated or the metabolism set point is become downregulated from excessive carbohydrate restriction. And then you follow that up with, with about a dinner time to dinner time fast of around 24 hours. That's a, that's a protocol that was introduced to me by my friend, uh, Dr. Dan Pompa, who's very into these feast famine cycles and this idea of a five one one diet. So for some people, they're not, they're really not doing on five days of the week, much carbohydrate at all until the weekend where they'll have some carbohydrates and then throw a fast in and then kind of rinse, wash and repeat. So again, it comes down to individuality. Are you an exercise enthusiast? Carbohydrates post-workout scenario works well. Your professional athlete twice a day works well. Are you a sedentary individual or, or someone who's just kind of passively moving and, and walking during the day and perhaps it's not going to the bank at the, at the gym or out in your garage with a hard workout? Well, for you, it might be a 5-1-1 protocol or, or a morning carbohydrate protocol. Right, right. And it sort of makes me think about, you know, the, the whole idea of seasonal eating, which you and I have spoke about before and how, you know, studies show in the winter – uh, fall and winter amylase levels start to rise obviously when some of the starches are naturally harvested parasympathetic activation for rest and digestion support are, are increased during the colder months again suggesting we need more digestive strengths to digest the harder more dense foods that are harvested at the end of the summer and into the early part of the winter but then comes springtime the rules start to change. We go into that famine period where there isn't a lot of food, the kind of natural ketogenesis caused by calorie restriction and fasting um, by, by force, force of famine, as opposed to necessarily a higher fat diet. But even, you know, I would even, you know, can make the case that we go into ketogenesis in the springtime um, because of uh, there isn't anything left in your stores. You have to hunt, therefore you're gonna get a higher fat diet that way. There's a limited amount of food available, so you're going to get, you know, a calorie restriction, ketogenic burst at that time. Sort of resetting your body's ability to burn fat in the springtime, and the body. And I'm and I want to ask you this question. One of the things that I've been researching on, or do and do you know anything about this? Do the receptors or the body's ability to burn fat in the springtime, which seems to be naturally occurring, to reset fat burning for the year? and then burn all the carbs that are harvested at the end of the summer to just amp up for reproduction and, and store energy and insulation for the winter. And we, we kind of overshoot those carb starch utilizing runways. And then come spring, we change the, the, the energy guard and now we have a whole new source of fuel. So none of those fuel sources seem to be overused and therefore depleted. And we seem to see studies, if you just do carb, 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 you end up with nothing with bugs that digest carbs, you end up with prediabetes. If you do a ketogenic diet for a long period of time, lots of new studies are suggesting that should be sort of a cyclical thing and not just ongoing for a very longer, a longer period of time. So I, I'm curious if you've taken a look at the seasonal um, kind of understanding of maybe why we should be, you know, more ketogenic in the spring and more, you know, carb or starch-based in the fall. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, in my opinion, based on limited availability of some of the things like, uh, you know, tubers and, and fruits and starches and, and grains in the winter, uh, along, along with the, you know, for example, in Washington State, you've got like kind of an October through December hunting period where, where you know, you're, you're out hunting meat. It seems to me that, that slightly higher meat and fat consumption in the winter when those foods seem more available makes sense. But it, it depends too on, 
on on what you're harvesting at different times of the year. I mean, if you've harvested enough from your garden or, you know, or, or the land or your field to be able to have a lot of carbohydrates available in the winter, then, then maybe you can have more carbohydrates in the winter and less in the spring when they're, they're still growing and, and haven't yet uh, become ripened and, and are less available. So it's kind of, it's, it's kind of tricky. I think if we step back and we look at it big picture, we simply know that the body responds very well to press pull cycling, right? Like exercise and recover, you know, eat protein and then avoid protein, eat carbohydrates and then restrict them, you know, fast and then feast. And, and so I think for, for a lot of people for whom this seems complex, we simply need to step back and, and give the advice of being cognizant of some amount of cycling, being cognizant of how frequently you're taking in red meat or how frequently you're cycling carbohydrates or, you know, whether you're eating fruit in times of, of sunshine or when you're close to the equator, when say traveling on your vacation to, to Mexico versus, you know, limiting it when you're at home and you're not getting as much sunlight exposure. I think it's, it's more awareness of, of the cycling than, than hard and, and fast rules, which is especially relevant when you consider the fact that we're no longer relegated to what is actually available during certain seasons in the era of Amazon food delivery and readily available grocery stores, et cetera. I think a, a lot of people just from a pure, almost like a, a decision fatigue standpoint can do better with just being aware of cycling food, but you know, per, perhaps not necessarily making a hard and fast decision whether their their low carb time is going to come in the winter versus you know the, the spring for example so I, I know it's kind of a vague airy fairy answer but you know I, I think just stepping back and looking at a big picture for a lot of people is is a little bit more digestible pun intended for them we do know that like the hutterites the studies with them and and the the new stanford studies the haza tribe but their their gut microbes dramatically shift from one season to the next based on the food that they eat and the question is, is it the food that they eat that changes the gut bugs, or is it the, 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 you know, the gut bugs that are creating the desire for the different foods? Um, one study did show, two studies show that the amylase and the parasympathetic digestive strength increases during cold climates, not necessarily seasonally. So it wasn't the food that, that increased amylase, it was the cold, suggesting that, that our environment actually amps up our ability to digest stuff that was there for millions of years and then we actually would eat them and be more in, in sync with them. And, and the fact that the, that the gut bugs dramatically do shift from one season to the next does suggest that we should put some attention on you know, what we do know about seasonal eating, which is that, the, that the, the, the foods do dramatically change from one season to the next, particularly if you weren't, you know, if you're living in, you know, from a somewhat of a local environment. That's sort of the Ayurvedic approach. Say, hey, we're going to yeah. give you around the world, but we're going to classify them for what you would get sort of in the winter. And, and even though you can get them avocados in the winter, they're still a high fat. They're still going to insulate you in the winter and they're still going to be good for you. And then we begin to allow to make this kind of dietary shift and kind of be in sync with warming foods in the winter to help you stay, you know, not get cold and boost immunity and decongesting kind of lo low fat kind of roots and berries and, and leafy greens in the spring to decongest us from getting extra sort of allergic in the allergy season of spring and then cooling us down with fruits and vegetables in the summer during the hot summer months seems to be something that uh, 
that a lot of the science, because I'm writing a lot about that lately, that seems to be uh, bearing that out, that, that maybe that's what we should be doing, is making these, you know, gentle, but, but, you know, but noticeable shifts in our diet, not eat the same food all year long, and then and just calorie restrict, you know, for, you know, a week here and a week there. You know, Ayurveda was like, the fasting should be done in the springtime, which makes perfect sense. That's when all the religious fasting, you know, vision quests and religious fastings were done in the spring. At a time in nature where there probably wasn't a lot of extra available food, and then therefore, you know, fasting would be a good idea. And therefore, you know, forced fat burning that stabilizes your mood, breaks the dopamine craving for, for, for sugar, and it makes you more calm and therefore more spiritual. So it became a perfect spiritual solution. Make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. And you, know, of course, it's kind of interesting because inclement weather sometimes does cause you to to need to pile on a few more calories or a little bit more fat. And the, the spring sometimes is a little bit friendlier, just from a from a pure weather and then a you know a, the the thermic cost of of staying warm type of effect. So that kind of makes sense. That might that might be a more or more comfortable time to fast as well. And returning to some of your comments on the on the microbiome. I think it's I think it's both. I think that uh, the the uh, the food intake can affect the microbiome. Of course, we know that, but the microbiome can affect your your desires for certain foods. And you know the the firmicoid bacterioid ratio, which is very simple to measure. You know the the higher that is, it seems that the the lower your craving for for sugar and carbohydrate tends to be. And people who have been on a very kind of high carb uh, you know, high processed sugar, high glycemic index diet typically have unfavorable firmicoid to, to bacterioid ratios. I believe you want them above about 10, I, I think is the number. And uh, one of the ways that you can modulate that and kind of reset that is via high intake of prebiotics, modbiotics, and postbiotics, meaning that rather than just say like, you know, taking a uh, a, a probiotic pill or say just eating a fermented food like a yogurt or a kefir you're doing a lot of like uh, like skins and 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 the oils of the plant and in the seeds in some cases you know eating mm-hmm. for example, be like eating a whole pomegranate right like like shaving the peel and dehydrating that and making a powder out of that and then making a juice in, in which you're grinding up the seeds as well for all the oils and the seeds and and even eating some of the, some of the white bitter bits in the inside you know if you were to eat a, a whole pomegranate for example that's a perfect example again your your pre your your mod and, and your postbiotics and you know eating eating the whole food in many cases can be a very good way to reset that ratio and eliminate some of those cravings that might have arisen from a from a poor diet you always wonder you know how many animals are actually peeling their oranges or peeling their pomegranates you know what i mean i think they just eat the whole thing right and uh and it's tricky because you know you do have the concept of lectins and of course stephen gundry has written the book the plant paradox and and argued for you know seeding your cucumbers and tomatoes and and peeling them as well and and pressure cooking your potatoes and completely you know completely uh, inhibiting any amount of lectins in the foods that you eat and and you know, I, I don't necessarily take that approach. I, th- I think that there there is certainly a certain amount of, of small gut damage that can occur from lectin exposure. But in a healthy gut, I suspect it has more of a hormetic effect and mm. allows the body to mount up its own natural defenses, its own mucin production, et cetera. Uh, in an unhealthy person, in a person with a leaky gut, in a person with a you know a compromised floral balance or anything like that, yeah, it may be prudent to 
to be cautious with excess lectin intake, you know, and, and eating a lot of seeds and skins. But, you know, in an ideal scenario, you want to heal your body and get it to the point where you can eat a diverse array of foods. Uh, you know, and, and honestly, it's more enjoyable too. You know, it, it's, it's kind of like the carnivore diet. I think it's a little bit myopic and it certainly works for people because it's an elimination diet. And I, I think it, it could be a good way to heal the gut, you know, <laughs> all the mTOR and, and the, the gluconeogenesis discussion aside, I don't think it's the best way to heal the gut, but, but, you know, as an elimination diet, it, it can be something that, that allows for some healing and some control of autoimmune issues. But in an ideal scenario, if that's the diet you decide to do to do that, it should be to get through eight to 12 weeks of that diet and then get yourself to the point where you can eat a wider variety of foods because, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a foodie, right? Like life's, life's too short to just eat one specific uh, compound like meat year round. You know, I, you know, we, like I mentioned, you know, we, we've got chickens and we've got eight raised vegetable garden beds and, and we do a lot of fermenting and, and pickling and jarring and canning for the fall and winter months. And, you know, we eat outdoors a lot during the spring and the, and the summer. And, and, uh, you know, my, my take on diet is that, you know, just about anything on this planet can be rendered digestible. You know, just about anybody's gut can be healed. And, you know, if, if you've got a healthy gut, then, then, you know, render your food digestible. And it's, it's a very good kind of like lifelong eating pattern, especially when you work in some of the feast famine cycling and seasonal eating concepts that, that you've elucidated. Well, I think, you know, you're so right. Any extreme diet uh, will provide a, a, you know, elimination diet for a period of time, make most people feel really, really good. The, the question is, how do you feel long term on that diet? And we also know that these lectins that are harvested, they only are really generally harvested once a year and then they're gone. And, you know, we know that we've been eating poisonous foods for millions of years, whether it be goitrogens or, or oxalates or lectins. And they are part of what's provided our gut immunity, that response to the irritants. And if we take away that, those irritants, we end up with sort of processed foods, really easy to digest foods that don't spawn the, di the digestive gut immunity that we should have. And studies show that people who are gluten-free have four times more mercury in their blood than people who, who eat wheat. Um, people who have gluten or gluten-free have significantly less good bacteria, more bad bacteria, and significantly less killer T cells and people who eat wheat. And of course, there's those two big major Harvard studies over 30 years that show that people who eat more, the most gluten had significantly less diabetes risk as well as heart disease risk, all of which points to the idea that I don't think people should eat wheat all the time and the highly processed nature of it and the fact that we spray a bunch of stuff on it like glyphosate and the fact that we have overeaten it three times a day for 30, 40 years is a really, really bad idea. But Taking those hard to digest foods like the lectins out of the diet and not actually saying, hmm, you know, maybe it's because I've broken my body down with a lot of highly processed foods over the time, and maybe I should rebuild my digestive strength so I can get back to eating them in season to amp up my gut immunity and my hormesis so I don't become vulnerable. And that's, we know that people who are gluten free and celiac folks have a lot of issues getting other nutrients in their system as well, which is a big deal. So I'm curious to, to uh, you know, I know that that um, you're not against wheat, but I know you, but I know that your take is a little bit on that gluten is still um, an issue. And I, I make the case that undigested gluten will find its way into your lymphatic system and cause brain fog and issues in your skin and bloat around your belly. Those are all lymphy issues 
and that's supposed to be sealed by an intestinal skin lining. And if we if we seal and heal it up, then then there's a lot of really good science on the benefits of of wheat and gluten in season in a non-processed way. Yeah. Well, first of all, regarding the lectin and the gluten component, you're you're, you're spot on. I mean, it's it's like using antibacterial hand soap. If you're extremely sick with an extremely compromised immune system, there are some situations in which that might benefit you. But if all year long you're using antibacterial hand soap and, and cleaning your house with all sorts of, of antibiotics and, and antibacterials, you're not going to have a very robust immune system. Very similar to if you're never eating lectin and never eating glutens, you're not getting a lot of those immune system modulators that we can get from plants. When it comes to gluten, I, I think the big issue is glyphosate, honestly. I, I think that, that crops that are sprayed with pesticides and, and herbicides can render the gut a, a lot more sensitive to gluten, a lot more incapable of, of digestion, a lot more incapable of some of the lymph flow that you've talked about. And so I think, first of all, you know, trying to limit your exposure to glyphosate is prudent. I, I actually have talked to Dr. Zach Bush a couple of times. I use his product called... Uh, Restore, which is basically like a lignite extract that, that seems to, to do a pretty good job protecting the gut lining from some of the ravages of glyphosate. But you know, if you're eating a, a good, you know, non-GMO, uh, preferably a, a non-sprayed wheat, like we use typically a red wheat berry from here on the Palouse, and we make a big loaf of a slow fermented sourdough bread, uh, which which allows for some of the deactivation of some of the phytic acids and, and breaks down a little bit of the gluten and lowers the glycemic index prior to consuming that bread. Um, I have absolutely nothing against, against gluten or the consumption of bread. Again, it all comes down to the, the source and the quality, the wheat, and also the integrity of the gut lining. Um, okay, let's talk about some of the fun stuff. Um, I know that... that uh, all right, I've got about, I've got about five... 10 minutes max here. So let's, let's dive in. Yep. Good. I want to tell I want you to tell me about your favorite longevity biohacks. What can you share okay. with us? And, yeah. <laughs> All right. So when, when we talk about biohacks, I would say that I would categorize those as, as things that allow us to be able to, to access some healing modalities that we might find outdoors uh, for example, or in a natural or ancestral setting in a little bit more convenient or more quickly administered setting, you know, such as my use of, of photobiomodulation or light producing devices when I can't get outdoors. Another example would be grounding or earthing, right? We know walking outside barefoot or with, with limited uh, footwear or maybe carbon plugs built into your footwear or animal skins on your feet as our ancestors would have done will allow you to, to soak up some of the natural healing electromagnetic frequencies of the planet earth, but I also have devices in my house that for me, for, for injuries, for decreasing inflammation, for improving sleep, uh, seem, seem to, to help out quite a bit and, and almost like concentrate and simulate many of those frequencies. And that, that's called pulsed electromagnetic field therapy. So I use light therapy quite a bit. I also use these so-called PEMF devices. I sleep on a PEMF mat, which simulates what I get if I were, if I were camping outdoors or grounding or earthing. Uh, on, on my joints, if I have an injury, I use a, a unit developed in the racehorsing industry for decreasing inflammation, and, and uh, uh, that, that one's called a, a pulse center's PEMF unit. So 
I use that quite a bit. Um, and, and PMF has some good research behind it for decreasing inflammation and also increasing production of stem cells. Um, and speaking of really? stem cells, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I didn't realize that decreased stem cell activity. That's, that's, that's amazing. Originally, it was, it was developed for, uh, for, for NASA, and, and some of the original research on that does show a, an increase in stem cell production. And for example, you know, I'll do some of these stem cell procedures where I'll harvest stem cells from my body to okay. store them. Uh, and then re-inject them every year or so intravenously uh, or, or inject them into joints that have become injured because the joints heal far more quickly when you do that. But uh, for example, if you concentrate PMF on the, on the long bones of the femur, you know, the marrow is where a lot of those stem cells are stored. Those are, those are stem cell banks and, and they can get released and be more available. So if you were to go and, and harvest your own stem cells, you can actually do PMF treatments prior to, to make them more bioavailable and increase stem cell mobilization, but you don't have to harvest your own stem cells. There are a lot of, you know, other technologies and, and, and this is kind of cool. This is another thing I'll do in addition to, to light and, and, and earthing and grounding and PMF is uh, there, there are these forms of, of uh, stem cells called adult pluripotent stem cells, also known as very small embryonic like cells. Uh, we know that the, that uh, your body can produce more stem cells when exposed to some type of hormetic stress like heat or, or cold or, or pressure. And in this protocol, they'll, they'll take some of your blood and then stress that uh, overnight, typically in a cold medium. And you get this release of what are called adult pluripotent stem cells or very small embryonic-like cells. And then you'll have those re-injected back into the body, typically uh, intravenously. And in many cases, those are combined with something called exosomes, which are cell signaling molecules that allow the stem cells to communicate more effectively after they're injected. And uh, I've, I've had that protocol done a couple of times. I, I measure my telomeres uh, on a quarterly basis, and uh, that has decreased my telomere length significantly uh, doing that procedure and also just doing uh, stem cell infusion accompanied by exosomes. And so while you can via fasting, via other, other methods of increasing cellular autophagy like cold and, and heat and, and exercise, increase your own endogenous stem cell availability, this, this ability to be able to, to concentrate your own stem cells and re-inject them or, or to use even like an umbilical or an amniotic stem cell seems to have a, a really good improvement on, on telomere length. And, and then uh, another thing uh, that, that's been well-researched by a company called Sierra Sciences are these telomerase activating molecules that actually uh, don't decrease the rate at which telomeres shorten, but directly lengthen the telomeres. I mean, think of it as like a, a tug of war as you age, the, the, uh, the telomeres become shorter and, and telomerase can, can lengthen those cells and kind of pull on the other end. And uh, Sierra Sciences has done some good research on telomerase activating molecules. There's one called TA65 which is actually very similar to the, to the herb astragalus, but seems to work a little bit more effectively. There's another molecule called uh, uh, TAM818, and I, I take both of those based on the research behind them for, for increasing telomere length and activating telomerase. So that's, that's another one. Uh, and then, you know, I, I also use a lot of heat and a lot of cold. I take a cold shower usually a couple of times a day. I'm in the infrared sauna nearly every day for 20 to 30 minutes. We know the studies that have come out of Finland that show an improvement of, I think, lifespan of four to five years once you've isolated for, for a lot of other variables. 
And uh, this was in, in men, you know, accompanied by something shocking. Like I think it was like a 60% decrease in, in risk for Alzheimer's with uh, being in the sauna, you know, four to five times a week for about 20 to 30 minutes. So I used to, of course, use the sauna to heat acclimate when I'd race Ironman triathlons. And now I just use it as a, as a wellness and a detoxification and a, and a longevity strategy. Uh, along with, with frequent exposure to cold, you know, again, for the hormetic effect of increasing your, your cold shock proteins, you know, blood flow, nitric oxide, uh, vagal nerve tone. So I do a lot of heat, a lot of cold, a lot of earthy and grounding, a lot of playing with light, a lot of both exogenous and, and endogenous methods of increasing stem cell activation. And if I could throw one more at you from a, from a longevity standpoint, um, you know, this, this NAD molecule, uh, nicotinamide, adenine, dinucleotide, uh, levels of that seem to fall pretty dramatically with age. And it, it's one of the primary components that's, that's used by the electron transport chain in your mitochondria uh, to, to maintain normal hydrogen balance. And, and uh, NAD is now available as a, as a pill in the form of something called nicotinamide riboside or NR. Mm -hmm. uh, but I actually get that injected. I, I, I inject myself. Wow. I did did it last night. I do a push IV of NAD once a week. And that also had a, had a very, very significant impact on not only qualitative variables like, like sleep onset and sexual performance, but also on telomere length. And so, you know, again, all of these things, if you wanted to go the natural route, you, you could like NAD, uh, you can get a lot of beta lapachines or precursors for that from something like, uh, you know, powdery bark tea, uh, high intake of fermented food seems to improve it as well. And, and a lot of these sirtuin-rich foods like dark chocolate or red wines or blueberries seem to have an effect on it. But, you know, again, returning to the biohacking, it's almost like kind of getting mega doses or, or concentrated doses of some of these things to, to engage in a little bit of better living through science and enhance longevity even more or assist one in the, in the, you know, in the battle in a post-industrial era of environmental toxins and mitochondrial damage. So, I do, uh, I do the NAD as well on a, on a weekly basis. So, so those are some of them. In, in summary, the use of light or photobiomodulation, the use of earthing and grounding in, in the form of pulsed electromagnetic field therapy, uh, stem cells, uh, and also exosomes. Some of these telomerase activating molecules like TA65 or, or TAM818 or even just astragalus. Uh, and, and then also uh, the use of, of nicotinamide, adenine, dinucleotide, or, or NR as a, as a supplement, along with plenty of heat and plenty of cold. <clears throat> Two more questions. Um, one, um, Elizabeth Blackburn's work, who did the telomere, telomerase work, the telomere work, she also did a study showing that meditation uh, lengthened the telomeres. I'm curious to know, comparing meditation's benefit on telomeres versus some of the things you've mentioned, any, yeah. any sense on which is, yeah. or is it equal to less than more than? It's, it's less than it's about one to 2% for meditation. It's about 15 to 16% for these telomerase activating enzymes. And, and don't get me wrong. You know, I, I meditate. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the spiritual disciplines like, you know, fasting and solitude and, and silence and prayer right. and worship and community. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it doesn't come okay. near what a telomerase does. Oh, great to know. And also, in terms of people finding out about what their, you know, their genetic predispositions are for diet, is there a, a, a lab or, or a place that you can recommend people to go to get information about what diet might be best suited to their genetics? Sure. Uh, 23andMe is enough for that. Uh, oh, really? Get, 
a decent number of, of SNPs. If you wanted your, your full genome analyzed, it is more expensive, uh, but uh, the, the health nucleus in California can do full genome. And then there are, there are some pretty good companies out there to help you dive into the data. And some of my favorites include Dr. Bob Miller at Tree of Life for analyzing mm -hmm. genetic SNPs that allow you to customize your diet or supplementation program. Uh, Dr. Ben Lynch at Stratagene, the author of Dirty Genes, uh, who analyzes a lot of different pathways like nitric oxide and, and methylation and uh, 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 sulfate pathways. Uh, and and uh, Dr. Kareem Danani, for those of you in Canada, he's a very good practitioner in Canada who does pretty good interpretation of genes. And he, work, he doesn't work through 23andMe. He uses a company called Utrients. Uh, uh, um, and then there's also, if you just want to ma manage this yourself, there's a website that's very helpful at 23andU.com. That's got a full database of all the different websites that you can upload your genetic data to and kind of get your own PDF reports and helpful reports generated if you're kind of a, a DIY type of person and don't want to work with a practitioner like, uh, like Dr. Miller or, or Dr. Lynch or, or, or Dr. Danani, for example. Hmm. Wow. Amazing stuff. Ben, tell us how people can, can find you, get more information about everything you offer. Yeah, I just have a blog and a, a podcast at bengreenfieldfitness.com. Uh, and then I also own a supplements company called Keon, and that's uh, actually based in Boulder, down there where you are, John, uh, at uh, getkeon.com. So those are those are two of the best resources, bengreenfieldfitness.com and, and getkeon.com. It's uh, K-I-O-N. Cool. And everybody, those, that, that information will be linked to the show notes. And also I'll be writing an article about this video that'll give all that information, how to get a hold of you as well. Ben, I want to thank you. I know your time is short. Thanks so much for spending this time with me. I truly appreciate it. I know we just scratched the surface and maybe next time we can dive deeper. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Next time in Boulder, we'll have to go on a hike or something. Yeah. Wonderful. Love that. <laughs>